Again, as I mentioned right before praying, if you have a Bible, I want to invite you to turn with me to Isaiah chapter 9. We started, we began a new series last week um, looking at what child, answering this question, what child, this song that we sang last week, what child is this? Who is this child that was born in Bethlehem? We looked at the names, the name of this child and what its name will be called. And so look with me to Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6 and 7. I want to invite you and encourage you to memorize this, these verses uh, throughout this series. And I'm going to read them here. So Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6. And here are those words that we were just singing. A Christ is born for you. Listen to the words of the prophets. Nearly over 700 years prior to his birth, this prophecy is foretold about a a Christ king, a Messiah, this king, this boy child, or this child that was going to be born, this king. And it tells us this in verse 6, for to us a child is born. Notice that, for to us a child is born. To us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. And what will this child's name be? What will this child be? Not just what he'll be called. What is his name? Who is this child that is to be born? His name shall be called Wonderful Counselor. We looked at that last week. Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. And if you're not sure if it's going to be able to be accomplished, the Lord continues and says, The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. See, this is God's word to us. I don't know if you have children or if you, your children are all grown up now, but in our home, we had two biological boys. Is kind of how we started them. We have our daughter that we adopted uh, when she was three and a half. But if you have boys in your home, uh, I mean, girls can be this way too, but especially, especially boys, they love to have to test their strength. Like, Dad, I don't know if you're stronger than I am is the question that comes out sometimes. I mean, it, even still, I know Colson's now turning red and, and smiling, and now he's like, now you've said my name, Dad, what are you doing? I'm testing your strength now, yeah. But in our home, they like to test their strength. We have arm wrestling matches all the time. We have wrestling matches. They want to see if they can pick me up. Do they have the strength now to pick Dad up? 200 pounds of me, pick me up, and, and try to do these things. And they want to see how tough and how strong am I. They want to know how strong am I, how strong I am, but they also want to see how strong they are. And can I match dad's strength? I heard a quote, and I, it, is, it, is, it is just stuck with me. And I see it more and more over the years of these matches, of wrestling matches in our home and all these little contests of strength. Was, I was at a conference, and this, this man I'd never heard of before, he was actually a, a really, really successful soccer player um, in England. And, uh, but now he's older, he became a Christian, and now he goes around, he speaks, and he's 
he's even a pastor at this point too. I know he goes around and speaks at conferences. And this conference I was at a few years ago, he's, I was listening to this and he was talking about parenting. In his parenting talk, he said this and it stuck with me. He said, when I wrestled with my son, I wanted him to test his strength. Like, I want him to see, like, okay, when he's wrestling me, like, you're, he's, a boy is wanting to test their strength. Like, how strong actually am I? But he said this, when I wrestled with my daughter, I wanted her to feel her father's strength for her. He wanted, I thought that was such a remarkable quote that spoke deeply into my heart. Because it's like, I want even my daughter, you know, as we wrestle around too and, and play as, you know, like I get quickly dogpiled. You know, if you ever had that as a parent, you know, the kids, they all dogpile on dad or mom. And here we are in bed and here they come jumping on me and they're all on top. And it's like, can I, can I push them up or not? All these things. But, but I want, like, even with, with playfulness, with, even with Graceland, I want her to see my strength for her. And we come to this word this morning, this, this word, this name for who this child is to be. What child is this? This word we get this morning is in the Hebrew, and it's El Gibor, and it's this phrase, mighty God. You see, this reference is to deity, that this child is more than just a human. This child is going to be deity. It's going to be mighty God. But it's not just a reference to deity and him being God. It's this reference of his, his ability to conquer, his ability to fight for, his ability to show strength for, like I was saying with the Gavin Peacock, Peacock quote, his strength for his people. That he is a mighty God and this child is going to be a mighty God. Not just any mighty God, but the mighty God, as the Hebrews would understand. His strength to fight for them. In the Old Testament, in Genesis chapter 28, Jacob built an altar and called it this name. He said, El Elohe Israel, meaning the mighty God is the God of Israel. Throughout history, we see the might of God to save his people. We see when they were in slavery, God was involved in a plan at the whole time and at every point. None of it was going by his, without his power involved. Even as Joseph was trying to be killed by his own brothers, but yet was sold as a slave into Egypt, God was, had a plan and he was in control. But even in that moment, as the people of Israel became slaves in Egypt for hundreds of years, God was going to rescue them. And he called a man named Moses, and Moses was going to go. He was going to tell Pharaoh, let my people go. And sure enough, he goes. And what had happened while they were there? It was ten plagues. Maybe you memorized them as a kid at some point, or maybe you've never heard of them before. You can find these stories in the book of Exodus. And in the book of Exodus, we see God's power over nature. He's bringing frogs, gnats. He's turning water into blood. He's turning a whole river into blood. He's doing all these things. We see his power over all these things because he is going to be in complete control. And this God is going to lead his people out of slavery and across. He's going to part the Red Sea. And his people are going to walk through that on dry land. But here comes Pharaoh's army in all of its might. Pharaoh has changed his mind. He wants to destroy Israel. They need to come back and be slaves for me again. And they get in the middle of that water. And God says, nope, you're done. He closes down. And the water crashes over and destroys the army. God is a mighty God. 
This is the God of Israel, the God who has all power. When they crossed over the Red Sea and eventually established themselves at Mount Sinai and Moses goes to meet with God in Deuteronomy, we find the story in Deuteronomy 10. After first, you know, he's given the Ten Commandments on tablets of stone. He comes down, he sees they've built a golden calf and he's angry. He slams down the tablets of stone, the Ten Commandments in anger. And God invites him back up the mountain and gives him the tablets of stone again. And here's what happened. After the golden calf and the second giving of the Ten Commandments on tablets of stone, Moses, in speaking to the people, listen to what Moses declares in Deuteronomy chapter 10, verse 17. For the Lord your God is, a, is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great, notice this, the mighty and the awesome God, who is not partial and takes no bribe. He executes justice for the fatherless and the widow and loves the sojourner, giving him food and clothing. You see, God, the God of the Bible is described as a mighty God who has all power and all authority. There is no authority above him. There is no person or thing or object in all of creation that has more power than he does. Isaiah 41.10 tells us that this might is used in such a way that he gives it to us. And in Isaiah 41.10, we hear that God will strengthen you. He'll help you and uphold you with his righteous right hand. This mighty God has enough power to uphold our lives, to hold everything in existence. I love what Raymond Ortland said, a retired pastor in Nashville, Tennessee, and a great author. I think one of the books that I recommend is The Gospel. It's a very simple book called The Gospel, written by him. He said this, The power of God is far superior to the Assyrians and all the big shots of this world, that he can defeat them by coming as a mere child. His answer to the, listen to this, I love this line. His answers to the bullies swaggering through history is not to become an even bigger bully. His answer is Jesus. This child to be born. But this child is to be not just a wonderful counselor, but he is the mighty God. I've heard it said a few different ways um, over this past week and studying for this passage, and so I heard several different say it this various ways, and one of the ways they were saying it is this, in connecting the two names, the name we looked at last week, the wonderful counselor, that he is, he gives wonderful counsel, that his, it's beyond, it's miraculous, it's beyond, it's indescribable, it's beyond words, his ability to counsel, that he, the, the, is the counselor. He needs no counsel. He doesn't need a cabinet to help make decisions for his nations, and he is himself the counselor. But here's, here's how I heard this said so many times, and I thought it was so unique for our passage this morning, is this. As the wonderful counselor, he makes the plans. He pulls together the plans. As the wonderful counselor, he makes the plans for all eternity. He makes the plans, but here, as the mighty God, he has the ability to fulfill and execute his plan. You see, not only is he a wonderful counselor, he is mighty God. So this morning, all I want to do is answer really kind of this question through a few different points, is why do we need Jesus, specifically this child? Who is this? Why is this Jesus needed? Why do we need him to be a mighty God? Why do we need Jesus to be a mighty God? 
And what we find through the stories of history and knowing that this is his name, is that he is mighty God, we learn first this, and if you're taking notes, feel free to write this down, is Jesus is mighty enough to accomplish his plan. Jesus is mighty enough to accomplish his plan. In Psalm 24, verse 8, we're asked this question, who is this king of glory? Who is he? The Lord. Strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle. You see, Jesus is mighty enough to accomplish his plan. How many of us have made plans and those plans were a big mess, right? Like, you're like, man, I've got a great plan. This is going to be, I do that every week, right? I have a great plan for a sermon and then it falls apart, right? Or something like that. You know, you like, you make a plan. You've got a good idea. You're like, all right, I'm going to build this. I'm going to, or we're going to accomplish this this weekend, right? Like, we've got our plans made. We're going to do this this weekend. We want to tackle this project and that project. See, I never make these plans. My wife makes these plans. And then I don't fulfill them is the problem in our marriage probably. It's like, she's one to make the plans, and I'm like, great, I don't want to do that. Like, all weekend, this is going to take too long, right? But like, here's the reality, right? We can make our plans, but do we have all power to accomplish all of our plans? Some things can happen, right? Stuff happens. Like, plans get changed Order gets become disorder. Life gets difficult and challenging or a, a circumstance arises and now you can't accomplish what you thought you were going to be able to accomplish. Here's the reality of this time of Christmas that we understand. I was helping my kids through our devotions this week and family devotions explain this uh, to them. Is Jesus is mighty enough to accomplish his plan. This child is not just any ordinary child. He is the God child, like this is human and deity into one person named Jesus. And Jesus is able to accomplish his plan. We've been looking at this in the book of Mark, haven't we? How God is orchestrating the events of history. That kings may are mere puppets for him. He has all authority if he wants to accomplish something. And so we were talking about this in our devotions this week and, and thinking about, like, I was asking the question, you know, well, because we were reading the story of, of Mary and Joseph and getting to Bethlehem, and I was asking him, like, well, what got them to Bethlehem? Like, why did they get to Bethlehem? And Levi, knowing, he knows the Christmas story pretty well, he's like, well, there was a king and there was a census, and he, they needed, and that's where Joseph was from. And I'm like, right, all that stuff. But why, why at that point in history, why at that point in their pregnancy was it time for that king to say, you need to come and you need to be counted, and so you've got to go to Bethlehem? Why? Because there was a prophecy in Micah 5. And in Micah 5, it said that this child was going to be born in where? Bethlehem. This child is going to be born in Bethlehem. This prophecy hundreds of years prior to the events of this day. So God is controlling Caesar. He's controlling every king and every throne. Nothing goes beyond his hand. And so he is in control of the plans. And he will accomplish his plan because he is the mighty God, what Jesus has done for you and I, no mere human could accomplish. Because why does this mighty God come? It's because of this, and I want you to write this down as well. Jesus is not just mighty enough to accomplish his plan. Jesus is mighty over sin. Jesus is mighty over sin. 
Listen to this quote from Charles Spurgeon. He says, if Christ were not the Son of God, his death so far from being a satisfaction for sin. That's a, that's a churchy phrase right there, so I want to I make sure we understand what that means. Because what he's saying is, this is the point, Jesus came to satisfy the punishment for sin. He came as the representative, right? He comes to take our place. We sing songs like this, the Lamb of God in my place, his blood poured out, my debt he paid, right? Like the point is he has paid the price for my sin. So when we hear that kind of churchy phrase of, of so far from being a satisfaction for sin, meaning he has satisfied the rights, he has taken the punishment for the sin. Here's what he says. If Christ were not the son of God, his death so far, so him, his punishment, him dying, so if Jesus were not the Son of God, his death, so far from being a satisfaction for sin, was a death most richly and righteously deserved. That's an interesting phrase because what he's saying is, if Jesus is not the Son of God, then all of his claims deserved to be murdered. He deserved because of his blasphemy. If he's not actually the son of God, if he's just claiming to be these things. And here's the thing. We can't play that game. Jesus was claiming to be God. Like that is, there's no argument who, what Jesus was claiming to be. The argument can be more so on the line of, is he actually the son of God? Was he really the son of God? Because his claims are there. We see it. He says, he says, if, if you have seen me, you have seen the Father. I and the Father, he says this phrase, no human says this. I and the Father are one. That's a bold claim. He's saying, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. His claims to deity, his authority over sin, and his, his claims to say, your sins are forgiven. Only God could do. So his claims are there. The question more is on the line of, if he is actually, if he's not the son of God, then really his punishment of death and his death on a cross was well-deserved, richly deserved, as Spurgeon says. But the question is, is the name that he shall be called is mighty God. The child that's to be born in a manger, this prophecy of old, is a claim towards the Messiah and the Messiah being God in the flesh. Emmanuel is going to be his name. You remember what Emmanuel means? God with us. God taking on human form, coming in the form of humanity and living a life among us, living the life that we should have lived and dying the death that we so deserved. You see, in Romans, I want to read it to you, Romans chapter 5, one of my favorite chapters in the Bible. I say that often, so sorry. I said it again. I can't help it. Romans chapter 5. I memorized this chapter a long time ago in the King James, and I do not remember it, though. My, memor my memorization has is, is kind of left me a little bit. But in Romans chapter 5, verse 12, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. Paul, is his argument here and what he's saying is that sin came into the world through one man's sin. And what is that one man's sin? It was the first man, Adam. 
Adam came, and there's two representatives, and I want you to see this in this passage. Paul does this brilliantly in, in Romans chapter 5. I'd love to expound on it, but don't have enough time for today. Point is, there's two representatives from humanity. There's Adam and there's Jesus. There's the, the first Adam and the second Adam. Jesus being the, what we call the second Adam. Adam, as the representative, failed us. But we can't just blame him because we have all sinned. It tells us, for all have sinned. But notice what he says as the, as the, the, as the thinking goes down. I want to skip down to verse 18. So notice what he says. This is what I mean by the first Adam and the second Adam. Therefore, as one trespass, one sin led to condemnation for all men. So one, notice this, here's the second Adam. So one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by one man's disobedience, Adam's disobedience, one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. Notice this, and you're like, if you're like, well, that's not fair. Like, why can, I didn't sin, Adam sinned, and I'm only sinning because Adam sinned first. That's not fair. Well, here's the problem when we play the fair game with God, (laughs) is God is infinitely holy. He is great and awesome, and do we think that we deserve what we're about to read? So by one man's sin, right, by one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. We all became sinners through one man's sin, but notice this. So by the one man's obedience, this is the Christ child, this is Jesus, this is the mighty God. By one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. That, my friends, is not fair. (laughs) It's not fair to be made righteous by one man's obedience. If we think it's not fair for the sins of the many to fall on us, then we better hope to God that his righteousness is sufficient for my righteousness because my righteousness, as Scripture describes it, is as dung. My goodness is never good enough. It is worthless. It is not going to ever attain righteousness and get me into heaven. It is only his righteousness for me because he is the mighty God and he is mighty over sin. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 24. Sorry to give you a tour on Scripture, but I think it fits for what we're discussing this morning. 1 Peter 2, verse 24. Jesus, he bore our sins. Who sins? Our sins. Jesus bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and to live and live to righteousness. You see, Jesus is mighty enough to defeat once and for all, all sin, the sins of the whole world. One more Spurgeon quote. I need to put more Spurgeon in my sermons, and I decided this week I'm going to do it. And so listen, he says this, the heart of Christ, this is a little bit longer, so don't try to write this one down. The heart of Christ became like a reservoir in the midst of mountains. All the tributary streams of iniquity and every drop of the sins of his people ran down and gathered into one vast lake, deep as hell and shoreless as eternity. All these met, as it were, in Christ's heart, and yet he endured them all. With many a sign of human weakness, but with convincing signs of divine omnipotence, he took all our griefs and carried all our sorrows. The divinity within strengthened his manhood and through wave after wave rolled over his head till he sank in deep mire where there was no standing and all God's waves and his billows had gone over him. 
Yet did he lift up his head and more than a conqueror at length, he put the sins of his people to a public execution. They are dead. They have ceased to be. And if they be sought for, they shall not be found anymore forever. Certainly, if this be true, he is the mighty God indeed. You see, Jesus is mighty over sin, and that is extraordinarily good news. You see, Christmas can become sentimental, and it's not sentimental. It is good news. It's actually the gospel. It's the best kind of news. So not only is Jesus mighty over sin, Jesus is mighty over death. Jesus is mighty over death. In Acts 2, 24, we hear this, but God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death because it was impossible for death, notice this, it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. You see, death couldn't get a stronghold on Jesus. Death couldn't keep him in the grave. Death couldn't overcome him. Though he died, he wasn't going to stay dead. This is why Christmas is great, and it leads us to Easter. Love this season as we just head straight to Easter, and I love to talk about Easter at Christmas because that's why he came. He came to bear the weight of our sin on himself and to die the death that we deserve, but we don't celebrate or we don't memorialize a dead Savior. We celebrate a risen, living, I love love Peter how he says this, a living hope. We sing a song like that. He is alive. It's not a hope in like he is paid and he's dead. No, because he rose again, we too have life and hope of eternity. We too know that once with his death and our identity in his death, that we too, when we die, that our hope is that we will be risen from the grave and join him for all of eternity alive forevermore. Not some spiritual state but a risen bodily resurrection. And I, I emphasize that at Easter is because I think we can just kind of think of like a resurrection like it's a spiritual resurrection. No, the Easter story is a bodily resurrection. It is a risen person, but he's the deity and we get to see more of his glory. And he comes and he shows up. One of my favorite stories after the post-resurrection is all of a sudden the door is locked, it tells us, and he appears with them. Like, I don't know how he got through the locked door, but he showed up. In the midst of them, probably terrified the disciples in that room, in that locked room. Here he has this risen body, and he's going to come back, and we're going to talk about that in a second. But Jesus is mighty over death. This is the hope that we have of Christmas. It isn't just that he came. It's that he died, but it's not that he just died. It's that he rose. You see, we have hope because of these wonderful truths, because it was impossible, as again, Acts 2.24 says, it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. First, for further reading, read 1 Corinthians 15 this afternoon if you have time. You get to see the hope that we have because Jesus is risen from the grave. And finally is this. Not only is Jesus mighty over sin, not only is Jesus mighty over death, Jesus will return in might. He will come in power. The almighty God is going to come to destroy every stronghold. He's going to destroy all evil, and he's going to banish it for all of eternity so that we know that in his kingdom, this everlasting kingdom, only righteousness and justice reigns. What a glorious kingdom that must be. 
Because when I go outside and when I look around, when I look my own life, my own family, when I think of the relationships that have been broken, I think of the hurts, I, th- I think of injuries and pain and suffering, I think of all the hurts and the injustice in our world. I mean, here we're seeing in you, these two ma- massive wars going on right now globally, on the global stage in Ukraine and Russia and the Middle East with Israel and Gaza and, and not just God, Hamas specifically. But here we have this, the Palestinians and the Israelites and, the, and God's people and this clash that we see. And we know, the, if you've read your, your Bible, you see this is going to be conflict. And we see injustices. We see rapes happen. We see, we see hurts. We see people um, taking other people's lives. We see people being mocked. We hear of racism and all the things. We look at the injustices of our world and we long for We long for his return because when he comes in might, he says there is no more injustice. Justice will be perfectly served and every wrong will be righted. I love how uh, Tony Morita says this. I think he explains it really well. Um, I'm not sure if this is the exact quote, but I've heard him say it several times, so I'll give it to him. He says, one day every wrong shall be righted. Every pain will be healed. That which is broken will be restored. This is when he comes. He doesn't come just meek and mild. And he doesn't come, listen, and I want you to hear this. He doesn't come like we were just reading as we were looking at Mark. He doesn't come just on a, on a colt of a donkey, this donkey, as he enters into Jerusalem. No, he's going to come on a white horse. and He's going to come with like a tongue, like a sword. And his word is going to be pierced. And all he has to speak and destroy his enemies. This is the conquering mighty God. He is a just God, and He is a mighty God. So the question I think for us this morning is, if Jesus isn't the mighty God, then I believe, like what I was encouraging to read maybe later today or sometime is 1 Corinthians 15, but like Paul really says, put his take and spin it a little bit, but if Jesus isn't the mighty God, then like Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, I believe our faith and our ministry is pointless. And we would still be dead in our sins. If Jesus isn't mighty God, if he is not God, we're doomed. And why do I say that? Because the sins of the world, we're still dead in our sins. This is what Paul was saying in chapter 5, verse 12. He says, therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. That means we're, we're, we're doomed. We're, we're hopeless. We're, we have no way out. We're stuck. We're enslaved in our sin. We needed a rescuer. We needed someone who is mightier than I am because I'm not strong enough. I don't know about you, but I give in to temptation. I fall short. I fail. I'm not mighty enough. I might fight against sin, and I might fight really hard, and I might be doing a strength test and saying, how strong am I? How much can I fight these thoughts and these things and these these lashing out of anger coming from my, my mouth or a greedy heart and a longing for more things and stuff? Or a deceptive heart that wants people to make, make, make yourself look better in front of other people so you might tell a little lie here, a little lie there. But you're like, I want to beat these things. I want to fight these things. Guess what? You aren't mighty enough. And you never were and you weren't meant to be. But if Jesus is the mighty God, then guess what? 
because of Christ, the Bible tells us that when, he, when we give our life to him, when we turn over control of our lives and we hand him the keys to our lives and we surrender and say, God, you get all of me. I surrender my life. I submit all of my sins before you and I thank you that you paid the price for that on the cross. Listen, when we do that, there's a great promise that the same spirit of God, the holy God, the, one, the same Spirit of God that rose Jesus from the dead tells us that that same God comes and lives inside of each and every one of us and gives us the power to overcome. In and of ourselves, can't. We just can't. We will always fail. But because Jesus is a mighty God, we can overcome. So what you're struggling with right now, whether that be some of the things I've already mentioned or something else that's foreign to any of us in this room that only you know, will you do this? And I want to I encourage you with this final like, kind of application point is this, and it's not on the screen, but you can write it down if you want, is we must turn from self-reliance and surrender to the mighty God. You see, We like to show off our strength and our ability, and we tend to live our lives in light of that fact that I am strong enough to make decisions for myself. I am strong enough to go about my life the way I want to do those things. We're very self-reliant. But if Jesus is the mighty God, we must surrender. We humble ourselves I can't help but picture this as kings and kingdoms would rule and reign. Eventually, when a kingdom was coming and to overtake another nation, what would eventually they do? They would bow their knee. They would get on their knee and surrender to this king, saying, okay, you win. You get my fealty. You get my respect. You get my service. I will serve you now. You see, that's what we have to do to this mighty God, is surrender, to bow the knee before this God of gods and Lord of lords, this King of glory. Like what John Oswalt said, he said, the contemporary significance of this passage of Scripture comes down to this. Have we allowed the child king to take over the government of our lives? I think that's the question for us this morning. If Jesus really is the mighty God, then he not just deserves, he requires our surrender. The question is, are you willing? Are we willing to surrender? Now, here's here's the crazy part is like, why wouldn't we, after the points we've talked about, that he is mighty enough to defeat sin for you? He is mighty to overcome death for you so that you get the benefits of his resurrection come to you. He's going to return in might and establish his throne for all of eternity. Listen, why would we not surrender to this kind of king? This is a perfect, holy, righteous king. He deserves our respect. He deserves our worship. I want you to see the mighty God, meek and mild. See his humility in coming, taking on human frailty, living with needs, hunger, thirst, pain, suffering. The mighty God humbling himself to servant status to wash the disciples' feet. Humbling himself to the point of death, even death on a cross. You see, this mighty God deserves our life of worship. 
Who are we to lean into our own strength? Who are we to live as if this mighty God doesn't exist? I want to encourage you. If you've never surrendered your life, or maybe, you know, you have, your, you trust God. Trust Jesus. You believe that Jesus is who he said he was and that he actually is the Son of God. And you believe these prophecies from 700 years before the events that happen. And that's maybe helping you understand these things. You believe these things, but yet you're living in light of as if you're still in control of your circumstances. And you're still in control of your life. Will you surrender? Will you worship You see, as Paul Tripp said, when God unleashed his might through Jesus to defeat sin and death for all of eternity, he also empowered us to desire and do what we would not be able to do without his son working in and through us. You see, we have that same power, spirit of God dwelling inside of us as a follower of his, empowering us to surrender and say, Lord, you get the lordship of my life. What your word says I will do. Where you say to go, I'll go. What you ask of me, I willingly do. And also this hope of because he has defeated sin and he has the power of that, I have hope. I have hope of freedom from this and a longing. I, I really believe this. Like, I don't know if it's like I got past 40 and it's like all of a sudden you're like, like life's flying and those kind of things. And, but in all seriousness, started, you start wrestling with, like, I always wondered, you know, like, my grandparents, you're like, man, my grandparents, they, like, they talked about heaven a whole lot. Like, like, it's like, like, why would they talk about, you know, like, I hit 40 and stuff. So I'm like, man, I'm starting to talk about heaven a whole lot, you know? And, and, but it's this reality of this longing because you, you've, experienced, you've experienced life and you're experiencing life and the, the hurts and the challenges and the, the, the regrets and the pains and the suffering and the disease and all that stuff. And there's just this longing for perfection. Longing for righteousness to reign and rule. And, and here's the big one for me, to be free from sin. To be no more sin. No more evil thoughts. No more self-centered desires. No more sin. Not sins against me, my own sins. No more sin. I can't even picture that yet. I mean, there's no, like, it's too hard to picture. But can you imagine a place where there's zero sin? That's the king that I want to surrender to and the kingdom where I want to be. And I encourage you and I plead with you give him. There's a song I bring an offering of worship to my king. No one else. Deserves the praises that I sing. Jesus receive. He deserves all of our worship. But here's the offering. The offering isn't just putting some money in a in a basket or in a in a in a box in the back or just submitting some money. No, the offering is ourselves. It's our lives in complete surrender to a mighty God. He is a wonderful counselor and he is a mighty God. Let me pray. Father, we thank you that you are almighty God. What a wonder you are. Father, we thank you for sending in the the wisdom of your plan to come born of a virgin, born in a lowly stable, born in a tiny, seemingly insignificant town of Bethlehem that is not so insignificant because of who was born there. Father, we thank you so much for your plan and your power to accomplish your plan that there was no other 
plan, that gospel was plan A from the very beginning. You're coming. The way that you came was planned out. And God, I thank you that you have the power to accomplish your plan. That the enemies uh, were not able to stop your plan. That Satan himself was not able to trip you up in the wilderness. He was not to keep you in the grave. That you overcame the grave because of these things. Because you are mighty God. Father, help us to respond with worship, surrender, with a hopefulness, with a longing for your return. Father, we ask that you would come, come quickly, restore, redeem, renew. Look at our world and we see such hostility and brokenness, injustice. And we can't really even fathom this kind of kingdom where perfection dwells. God, help us to long for it and see it as we read your scriptures. And this morning as we stand and as we declare together how great is our God, may we do that with a voice that is surrendered to the King of Kings. You deserve our worship, our respect. You deserve our lives. So may we live and surrender to you, the King. In Jesus' name. Thank you.